Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. I'm Tim Katuriak, and I'm joined by the one and only Brady Josephson. Hey, hey. Brady, we've got a pretty interesting show lined up for today, and tell us who, who we're talking to today. Yeah, today we're talking to uh, Jack Nasher. So uh, he's a visiting faculty member at Stanford University. He's a professor at Munich Business School. And he has a background in like negotiation and he worked for the UN. So he's got this like really interesting background. And uh, he came on the radar because he has a book called Convinced. And it's all about how to become like more credible and more perceived as competent to help increase like your job, your career, and your sales. And uh, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Well, I think that this is going to have a lot of relevance for the people that are listening in because when you work in our space, we're constantly trying to convince people to join us in our costs and, and you know get in, involved either financially or in some other way with nonprofit work. So I think that this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, I think so as well. And so uh, we're, we're going to cut to the conversation here with Jack, and then Tim and I will be back in a little bit to uh, talk a little bit more about this conversation and specifically how it applies to nonprofits in the generosity space. So uh, enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Jack. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. So uh, I read that you perform as a mentalist at Magic Castle in Hollywood. Uh, those are three That's things right. I, d- I don't understand, like a mentalist, what's the Magic Castle, and, and Hollywood itself. Like, how do you understand Hollywood? But hopefully you can so, share <laughs> a little bit more about at least a couple yeah. of those things. So first of all, Hollywood is a place. It's California's <laughs> part of L.A. I don't even know. It's just a location. It's a, um, and... Um, the Magic Cast is a club in Hollywood. So if you're from any chances are you've heard of it because it's a private members club and it's all devoted to magic. So they have bars where magicians perform, they have stages. It's a real fun place. And the, the president a couple of years ago was actually Neil Patrick Harris from How I Met Your Mother. And he's a, who's a magician, he's an accomplished magician. And um, so it's, it's, it's funny when you're into magic, that's the, like the greatest place on earth. Uh, really, uh, the happiest place on earth um, because it's you know it's all magic, card tricks and illusions. And um, yes, I perform there about once a year. I do twenty-one shows, three shows a night per week, and uh, yeah, that's just uh, great fun. And the third, what, oh, it was a mentally. Yeah, what's the mentalist? Well, it's just it's part of magic. It's like magic combined with psychology, combined with suggestion, hypnosis. So it's kind of like magic tricks, but it's not. You know, I'm not using props. My props are the audience. So it's like kind of, you know, creating the illusion of mind reading, creating the illusion of total control over uh, sometimes even over matter. So, you know, they say it's like using the five known senses to create the illusion of a sixth sense. So I, that's hmm. quite elegant way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, so how did you get into that? Well, I started as a magician. I always loved magic. I got a magic set as a kid and I performed it birthday parties and, you know, school hmm. assemblies, all that. And then I, uh, when I was a student, I worked in restaurants. I was a, you know, table hopping magician. Uh, <laughs> cards and, uh, 
yeah, so that was that was quite quite fun, and uh, and then I you know when I studied psychology, I kind of looked at the other side of magic more, you know, not like, you know, when you're a kid, you love the, you know, like magic tricks with silks appearing and you know stuff like that happening, and when you grow up, it's like the finer, the more subtle things are more amazing, you know, just small things happening. It's like a horror movie. When you're a kid, you want like big monsters, but as an adult, they don't scare you anymore. And it's the same in magic. Um, when you're a kid, you love the you know colorful, big magic tricks, and as an adult, it's more interesting when it's subtle. So things that could actually be real, you know, mm. uh, manipulation and uh, suggestion, making you know like small things, like I don't know, a block of wood just falling down, moving a little bit. It's kind of more eerie and more interesting. So that, I moved into that. And it's a good combination with my job as a negotiation advisor because it goes hand in hand, influencing people, capturing their attention, and you know, influencing what they what they want, their choices. Uh, so, the perfect combination. Which is a good lead into to your book, which I want to want to talk about. So it's called Convinced, and you bring in your experience in research and negotiation. But like, yeah. why why did you decide to write this book in the first place, and why do you think it's so important uh, to be out in the world right now? Well, um, I, I don't think it's particularly important right now. It's not that I think it's you know particularly good timing. Uh, to be honest, I think it's probably quite bad timing. Uh, but let, let me let me first you know let's. Uh, I started working on the topic when I was at Oxford University uh, 15 years ago, working on my master's degree. And, and I thought, you know, it's really interesting that people say, I have a great dentist, I have a great lawyer, and they know nothing about dentistry. And I thought, well, what do people base their decision on to, to say that somebody's competent? Um, and it's funny, when you ask people, they don't. They say, I have a great dentist. Ask why? Well, he's nice. Well, he has a beautiful clinic. So? You know, it doesn't say anything about his or her competence. And that was really interesting. I, I, I went into that to ask myself, well, what do people base their decisions on when they say this is the best I've ever seen? We're going to promote him or her because she's the best. Well, why? And I found that it's really weird what people base their decisions on. So, and, and I, did, you know, I, I use a research on how do you create the impression that you're the best in your field? Like it or not, it's kind of sad that it has almost nothing to do with your actual competence. Hmm. So, and that's one of the biggest findings. Uh, that's how the book starts. So there's a big gap between your perceived and your actual competence. And uh, you know, we think the world is fair. It's called the just world illusion, just world theory, that we think well, we get what des- we deserve, but we don't because people just don't know if you know if we're really good or not. And uh, we can influence this very perception. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's a very good time for the book because, you know, today, if you look at business books, it's more about, um, well, it's more about almost meditational topics and, you know, how to, uh, ma- you know, how to influence and make the world a better place and all this. And, you know, which is nice, but it has nothing to do with this book, to be honest. Just nothing. This is really only for you, how you can avoid that other people are promoted who are probably not as good as you, uh, that other people are hired who are probably much worse than you, uh, but, um, but who really, um, you know, who can sell themselves better. So, you know, with all the, the stuff now, sustainability and all that, it's, it's very much opposed to that uh, because it's really only about you, this book. Um, even though you could, of course, argue, people, you know, my publisher actually told me, well, 
actually making it's, it is sustainable uh, because this avoids you know people just who, who are just naturally selling themselves and gives you know other people tools uh, to to to, uh, to use and, and 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 to be successful as well. Yeah, well, when I was reading the kind of synopsis, you know, the the ability to be perceived as competent, um, mm-hmm. that's pretty that's pretty relevant to a lot of people, regardless Very of, relevant. you know, you know, your focus. And so maybe can, can you share a little bit more about perceived competence and some of the factors that go into how someone mm-hmm. is perceived as competent or some of the things they can do to be perceived as more competent? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly what it's about. It's basically it's like the a manual to to a DVD player or, or whatever. It's just you know what? How do you talk? How do you move? How do you talk about yourself? How do you use status symbols and what kind of status symbols? Uh, nonconformity. All all these things. And just to give you one you know one 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 major discovery was that actually is confidence, perceived confidence, that leads to your perceived competence. Hmm. So you know we follow people. Um, that I was just talking about, uh, you know, to, to Wall Street Journal uh, journalist who was, was writing about that swagger of leaders, how important that is to lead mm. people, because um, we tend to follow people who seem very confident, who appear mm. to be very confident in what they know, whether they know or not. I mean, just imagine your friends are arguing about who won the trampoline champion, world championship in 1928. And, you know, you have no idea. And one of them pulls out a $100 bill to bet on his candidate. So who are you going to believe? <laughs> so this, if somebody's confident about what, what he or she says, if, you know, observe it when you're with friends and you decide what restaurant to go to in the larger group. The one with confidence is the one people follow. And if, if you show confidence, and I, you know, I noticed this when I worked for the United Nations as an assistant attaché uh, in New York a few years ago, I noticed that, you know, people who were giving speeches at the United the politicians, they knew nothing about the topics. And I noticed, and I, you know, I realized they, they were briefed before their talks, you know, an hour before, two hours before. It was unbelievable the level of confidence they displayed. And I, you know, I talked to one of them. I was, you know, we're drunk because there was a bar every Thursday. The other did lounge. So after like four or five gin tonics, I asked them, don't you feel like frauds? You're like a charlatan. And he said, no. Because I'm a leader. My job is to show certainty in an ocean of uncertainty. Hmm. So remember that line. I liked it so much. <laughs> that people are very successful. They know that they don't know anything. They know. They don't have an overview, really. They, you know, I mean, they have probably have a brief overview. But, and that's what the guy also told me. They said, look, an expert is somebody who knows a lot about something very little, something very small. And a leader like me, is somebody who knows very little about a lot. And this you have to understand that you can never be, and that's one of the problems, especially people who are very good at their job. They think we're terrible. We, I know nothing. I know nothing. And that's the dilemma. It's usually the people who are very good that are too critical of themselves and don't show confidence, that are meek and they're always doubting, like academics. Mm-hmm. They know a lot. And yet, people don't follow them. Why? Because they're always doubting themselves. And it's fine to doubt yourself. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't be critical of yourself. I'm just saying that if you want to convince people, then you shouldn't. Because people are not convinced by people who doubt themselves, who doubt their, um, their abilities, and uh, you know, who don't have any confidence or don't show any confidence. And that's the point. 
And are there some ways to kind of fake confidence or, or appear more confident? You know, one of the things in your book, you talk about body language There's the things that we can mm-hmm. use just like without even talking, but just our posture or like, what are some body yeah. language things we can use to, to look more confident? Well, it's, it's funny that, um, well, first of all, um, you know, there, there's, there's a connection. So it means that if, if uh, I stand up straight um, and uh, Amy Cuddy, this, the Harvard psychologist, called it the uh, superhero pose. If I do that, something happens inside of me. All of a sudden, I do feel more confident. Hmm. It's the same that there, there was a re- research conducted by a German psychologist, uh, Strack, and he found that if you smile and watch a cartoon or a comic strip, you will think you will perceive it as being more funny than if you r- read it with a serious face. Hmm. Um, so actually, the, our expressions, uh, because we signal our, to our, you know, we give signals to our brain. So when I smile, even if it's a fake smile, I signal to my brain that I'm happy. So I think I'm happy, and everything I see, I perceive from an optimistic perspective. Now, if I stand up straight, one of the superhero poses, or Jordan Peterson wrote in his book, 12 Rules for Life, uh, you stand up straight. Uh, it, it's actually very good advice because everything changes in your perception of yourself and you will be perceived as more confident. So that's one of the absolute basic, basic things. Yes. Mm. Um, that is, that is one, one example, but also it's an attitude thing. And I think the one of the most important things is that don't, if you want to convince somebody of yourself, if you want to sell something, you should not try to be a good choice in the eyes of your client or superior. Don't try to be a good choice. Eliminate anything that can make you a bad choice. So look at things people do not like about you or that, you know, that could be a problem. And if you target that, if you Mm. target that, you'll be more successful than if you're just trying to be the best. So um, again, being you know, appearing competent is not all about just, you know, standing up straight and, you know, think uh, you're the greatest, I'm the greatest. No, no, it's just some <laughs> subtle changes you have to make. You don't have to change your personality. But, you know, showing confidence, being optimistic, showing optimism about outcomes. So, you know, people come to you with a task. The first thing you do, you, you notice what speaks against you and tackle that. Don't try to be a good choice. Eliminate things that could speak against you. And then... And that is the next step. You show confidence regarding the outcome of that task. You say, you know, it can be difficult. It will take some time. But trust me, you came to the right person. I'll take care of it. Because then you are part of the the solution and not part of the problem. You know, a lot of people, they act the opposite way. They say, ah, yeah, it's difficult. We don't know. And they think under-promising and over-delivering is good. Well, it's not. Hmm. Research has found again and again that under-promise, over-deliver, that's what uh, you know, British love to do. I'm in Oxford right now. So this is really the mindset right now, uh, where, where I am right now, that, you know, should play it down and then surprise them if it works well. But that doesn't work for your perceived competence. doesn't. So it's the American way, you know, the European say the American way, say, great, we'll be fantastic. It actually works. Interesting. That I'm, I'm just, I'm as a Canadian uh, who works with Americans, I'm just like processing this and trying to figure yeah. out, like, ooh, how do, <laughs> how do I use this? I mean, look, yeah, I mean, look at Trump when you know in, in his election. No matter what you think about him, but I, you know, I was really when when I saw his campaign and basically he was just using this technique over and over, and he didn't do anything else. He just said, "I'm great, I'm the best, fantastic, no proof, 
no track record of any political actions whatsoever. And I thought, come on, you know, he's using this to, you know, uh, just confidence, you know, oozing. But this is just too, too much. Well, turns out it wasn't. It works to such an extreme extent that I was surprised myself. Hey y'all, Brady here. Back to the interview in a second. But first, a question. Do you like going to nonprofit conferences? Uh, if not, maybe you're going to the wrong ones. And maybe you should try coming to ours. <laughs> it's pretty different, it's pretty fun, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's called the Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit. We are heading into year four of the summit. And next year, on September 24th, 25th of 2019, we will be in Denver, Colorado at the Ellie Culkins Opera House. Should be a great time with some great people. You can learn more about this event at neosummit.com. And if you're interested in attending, which we hope you are, you can actually actually save 30% just for being a podcast listener. You can use promo code PODCAST to get 30% off your ticket. That is neosummit.com and promo code PODCAST. Hope to see you in Denver in 2019. One of the terms you use in the book that uh, I'm not sure I, I totally understand, but I love the idea of is power talking. Can you unpack that? Like, mm-hmm. What is power talking and, and like how is it used? Well, power talking was found a few decades ago. Um, uh, by uh, you know by, by a feminist researcher, uh, Lakoff, and and she found that uh, women are perceived as being less competent because they use a different language, because mm. they um, use low power talking as opposed to power talkers, usually men, and uh, somebody went to court and saw that the ones who the lawyers who win are the ones who use power talking too, and power talking is a language that is void of unnecessary stuff like ums and uhs and hesitations and over polite language as well. So also asking, you know, apparently asking a question, going up with your voice at the end of a sentence like that, something that is typically used by women, at least it was in the 70s. So, you know, this research is, is, is again, decades old when women were probably, you know, it was probably a different time. And yet you can notice that people who talk in a weak language um, so, you know, they're asking questions instead of making a statement, or it sounds like a question as opposed to a statement like that. Um, and and uh, she found that it makes such a difference if you use this power talking, these power talking techniques. So brief sentences, very clear, concise statements. Again, it's ta- showing confidence. It's showing that you're secure, that you know exactly what you're saying. Okay, and that is that is power talking. And you know, in the book, I give several um, points. I think there are about six, seven points you have to look at when you use power talking, um, and it's quite easy. It takes a day or two, and then you can use it. And the effect that Lakoff found back in the day was just unbelievable. Uh, if you use power, it's interesting that this technique was basically forgotten. So I found it in some. It's quite well known. But not in practice. Um, so a lot of interviews they talk about power talking. I said, well, it's so well known in in research, but really nobody really knows it. And that's that's what amazes me that so many interesting findings in research are virtually unknown outside right. of universities. Right, right, right. 
Well, uh, you've talked a lot about like confidence and competence, but another theme that comes up in the book is is likability and and how mm-hmm. important it is to be liked. Like, why is that so mm-hmm. important? And mm-hmm. are there things that people can do uh, to come mm-hmm. across or, or be more likable? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, you know, one thing you have to keep in mind that um, being like, you know, you can be very unpopular and still be hired because people think you're the best. Uh, so, you know, watch a movie about some, uh, you know, unlikable uh, nerds, and but they're just the best. So everybody wants to work with them, and you know, even though they're kind of weird and, and, and not social. But that's the exception. You better be a genius if you're so unlikable. You have to be a genius or be perceived as a genius, at least. It's very difficult, though. It's much easier. So it just makes life easier if you're likable. Why? Let me just tell you why. The reason is the halo effect. The halo effect basically like it, it states that one impression influences other impressions about you like a halo it kind of shines on it so if you're very unpopular or let's say you're wearing dirty shoes and you know your clothes are dirty um, stained whatever then this really makes a negative impression on everything else on your competence on your likability and so on um, and unfortunately negative things make a strong impression on positive things so if you wear a real nice tie, people are going to say, wow, what a great tie. What a nice guy is. No. But if you wear, um, you know, a dirty tie or an extremely ugly tie, then this will negatively, you know, have a heavy influence on, on your perceived likability and also on your competence. And the one or the two things that are most important in the halo effect are likability and attractiveness. These two features influence Everything, all the perception about you to an incredible extent, uh, and also your your uh, how you convince others and your competence. So nothing is more important than being likable and being attractive. Now you can say, "Well, tough luck," you know. I'm up here. Well, I can tell you that um, interestingly, you know, because I looked at the the research on physical attractiveness, it's incredible. I was really surprised what things matter. Things you, you barely know. Uh, so, for instance, your, um, uh, your your tan. Tan makes such a difference, and it's so easy to acquire. It's more important than the nose, for instance, uh, which is really funny that you know I just say. But uh, the, the nose isn't very important in a face unless it's extremely big or extremely you know I don't know what, what whatever. But uh, usually, you know, for men, it's the jaw that really. Um, is the most important feature in, in the faith. And it's just interesting findings that, again, almost nobody knows. And you know, I'm just wondering why. I mean, attraction for all of us is just so interesting and so important, and yet, you know, it's virtually unknown. And what I did was basically I found some points that you can easily, pretty easily alter without, again, changing, go, going to this, uh, you know, to get to plastic surgery. But, <laughs> but basically telling you, well, you probably shouldn't work on that. That doesn't really matter. Uh, whereas other stuff uh, that, that really is easy to influence uh, matters. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that's really, really interesting. Uh, you know, f- smooth skin, stuff like that. And tan skin, darker eyebrows, for instance, for men, darker eyebrows. I mean, come on, that's or darker lashes. Um, Interesting, interesting stuff uh, that that really uh, I found and, and um, is, you know, some things are easy to influence, others aren't. Um, so, but, but still, this tells you what to work on and what not. And likability, well, I have good news for you that usually we are pretty good at being likable. You know, if I tell you, hey, 
did you make a good impression on my parents or whatever? And chances are you pretty much know what to say. You know, you're going to smile, you're going to be polite, uh, you're going to take a shower before you cut, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And yeah. We more or less know that. But, but there's some things we don't know. And uh, there was a researcher, Edward E. Jones, in, uh, in Princeton, and he worked on it for 40 years. And I, you know, and basically it's just a few pages in the book where I give you his, his uh, findings of 40 years of research, how to make people like you. And so, you know, it's like how you make people instantly like you with, with these, it's like three, three main points. Um, and that's, it's kind of fun to, to see that, you know, you know, I'm sure a lot of stuff you knew, uh, but, but some you didn't. And it just makes such a difference. You know, it's for instance, um, uh, how you praise people um, or, you know, if, if you praise somebody, uh, and how to do it, you know, to be specific. Don't tell somebody, hey, you did a great job. That doesn't really work. It's just, you know. But if you say, you know, I really liked, uh, you know, when you gave the presentation today, I really liked the way you used the slides because you didn't put so much stuff in it. It was just uh, very concise and was nice to follow. So if you make a very specific um, compliment, it, it works so much better than just saying, great job, because that's just empty talk. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, and um, again, I think uh, I, I think it's good to know these little things because um, yeah. as, because we're all dealing with human beings all the time. And if you really know how the human mind works in perceiving you, there's you know you can influence it. And why shouldn't you? Because you, you're going to do it anyway. Ninety percent of what others think about you is influenced by you. You know, it's of course it's helpful if you know how to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Cause again, you know, some of it sounds like, Oh, you, these are like, you know, hacks to become more likable or something. But the reality is mm-hmm. people are using these cues. They're looking at you, they're hearing what you say and how you say it and yeah. making judgments regardless of whether you want to, them exactly. to or not, they're right. doing it. Exactly. So, so exactly. you might as well, you know, lean into it, read your book <laughs> and get some of the tips, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and kind of take advantage yeah. of it. Yeah. No, you don't have to read it. I mean, just, just buy it, you know, <laughs> you can you can just do that as well. You said it so yeah, confidently. No, you said it so confidently. Yeah, yeah, I'm no, going to go do it. Yeah, yeah, but but it's, it's it's funny because you know sometimes you know when I when I wrote the book, you know my friend said, well, you know I think you you know you shouldn't write it. You know why why would you want to appear competent? Why should you you know just focus on looking competent? And you know it's not good to fake something. Or you know, I said, well, first of all, it's not about faking. It's about showing what you got. And second of all. I mean, you do it anyway. And then they said, well, well, what do you mean? A friend of mine, uh, you know, a female friend of mine said, you know, uh, well, I don't like to fake anything. I said, well, when you came here, did you put on lipstick? She said, yeah. Well, see, I mean, what's lipstick? You know, and you're faking, um, you know, red lips. Your lips aren't that red. Why, why are you wearing it? Why are you faking makeup? I mean, you're faking your face. It doesn't actually look like that. Your hair, do you comb your hair? Yeah, it doesn't actually look like that. And so on. She was wearing high heels. Well, you're gonna fake, you know, your body. You're gonna, you know, fake being looking taller. Well, you know, factions we do it all the time because we have one life and we want to live the optimal life. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, that you know, we just wanna wanna show what we got and you know, wanna use and, and we should use every you know every trick in the book. And finally, there's a book. And so um, kind of like last last kind of section here, you know, our, our focus is on giving and generosity and kind of the nonprofit space. And um, I'd be interested to know, how, how do you think these principles or your book or your research, like how can this be applied to kind of the social good space or the nonprofit space to help maybe like help nonprofits or, or help nonprofit workers or help giving or help generosity? How, how do you think it can be applied in that arena? 
Well, first of all, you know, you can only give when you got something. So this basically helps on the first step to actually have something. And second of all, um, second of all, it doesn't matter what you want to people, what you want to convince people. Uh, you know, this is just a tool to convince people. You can convince them to do anything, to sell you something, to sell, you know, to to buy something from you, to donate something. Again, this is about how to convince people of you that you know they put their trust in you, and that is always the first step. Whether you're a salesman, uh, if you're selling cars, people like you know prefer to buy from people who they consider to be competent. People go to doctors they consider to be competent. People go to uh, give to charities that they consider to be competent in you know, handling their money and not wasting their money. So the very first step in any way to convince people is to convince people of yourself. And that's why the title of the book is Convinced, you know, how to, and actually how to uh, win people over in a good way, how to convince them of yourself, of your, of your competence. So in that way, really, this is just a blueprint to convince people. And it doesn't matter what, what your goal is. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, especially when it comes to like the fundraising side of things where the overlap in sales is, you know, there's a lot of overlap and getting that trust or getting people to believe in you and your credibility is uh, is hugely important. Well, exactly. um, any, any kind of like final little like tips or nuggets or suggestions for someone listening who's just like, this is amazing. Besides, go get your book. Uh, you know, yeah, is there something, any other like interesting nuggets that you found in the research that really stood out to you that uh, we can leave with people? Yeah, let me <laughs> let, let, let me think. It's, it's, it's you know, I, I have to prepare a good answer to that because when you're <laughs> writing such a book and you think, damn, every chapter, you know, I, I can't. Right. Be, and, and the publisher tells you leave something out. And I say I can't. You know, every point is so important. <laughs> so that's why I have to tell you that you know, for me, it's all it's impossible to answer this question because it's kind of like like children. What's what's your favorite child? And you're like, oh, yeah, I can't. What am I going to say now? You know, it's really really tough. Okay, okay, one thing though. Okay, one thing just to start it. I just looked at the index to to base on. And one thing is, you know, modesty kills your perceived common. Never be modest mm-hmm. concerning your core competency. Well, you can say I'm terrible at ping pong. Yeah, but never say, you know, as a I don't know whatever you do. Don't don't ever joke about your expertise in your field because people will take it. Uh, you know, they they will believe it, and uh, and your competence will suffer because people believe being told and they will try to confirm their expectations hmm. okay so never use modesty and be honest modesty in the professional context is not a good trait you probably think you're honorable when you're modest you're not because you're basically telling them i'm doing something i you know i shouldn't because uh, you don't have any high expectations so leave out modesty because this will kill your it's quite it's the opposite of confidence you can, again be modest about things that do not affect your perceived right. confidence that's one last nugget. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, where can people find out more about you and your book? Well, jacknasher.com is, of course, uh, you know, it's um, and and the book is called Convinced. It will, um, yeah, coming out, I think, yeah, mid-November. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to, to share that as well. And thank you so much for uh, spending so much time and giving us some insights into your research and your book. Appreciate it, Jack. Yeah, well, pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jack. Uh, I know I did. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Uh, Tim, what what stood out to you from that conversation of all the stuff that Jack was talking about? Oh, there's so much to go through. <laughs> 
I, you know, one of the things that I know you and I have talked a lot about is like how you can't underestimate the power of being liked. Mm. And one of the things he talked about is how being likable may be more important than actually being confident. Right. right? Like people, people that are like super good at things that nobody really likes. I mean, who wants those people around them? Well, and it's so almost I like likability buys you the opportunity for people to understand how competent you are. You know, like if they don't like you, like you said, you need to be like a super genius. Otherwise, they're just not going to give you the time of day. So it's, it's almost like likability gives you more margin, you know, to play with, uh, right. to show people that you're, you're good or you're competent or something like that. And this is super important in our world of fundraising. Remember, we say fundraising always happens in the context of a relationship, and nobody wants to have a relationship with somebody that's a jerk, right? So yeah. you know, step one of applying some of this stuff is like think about how I can be more likable to the people that I'm interacting with, right? And I, I always thought it was fascinating where uh, – especially the major gifts world, which is less of you know my world. But I had a boss who was one of the best major gifts fundraisers I've ever seen. And she, part of it was she was so likable – and so uh, like credible and so like donors would give huge gifts based on her, like her credibility, not so much even you know, the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so kind of crazy about that world is people like, give a million bucks and they won't know a ton about the org, but they'll know a lot about the major gifts fundraiser, which is why these major gift fundraisers who are unreal like are so good at what they do because that's, right. that's impressive. <laughs> They're special people for sure. Well, the other thing that was interesting, he said, um, don't under-promise and over-deliver, mm. that, that actually doesn't do anything to build your perceived competence, yeah. which is very interesting. Sometimes we, we think that by doing so, we're going to surprise people, but if they don't buy into us being the right person to be able to make it happen, right, uh, with their investment or their money or whatever they're giving, I mean, like, then we, we miss that opportunity. So that was a pretty interesting one and one that's probably counterintuitive to a lot of folks. Well, and especially in the arena of, like, your own job. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it seems risky to say, like, what you'll do and, like, be bold and here's what I'll, I'll do because, you know, it, it's risky where it seems so much easier to just, like, well, you know, I'll, I'll say 70 percent and then hopefully, you know, I'll get it and then surprise them. Um, but, you know, that doesn't help you with perceived confidence. Now, if you do actually under-deliver, maybe there's a performance thing, but, you know, his point was how to be perceived as competent, and it's not to play right. it safe and, you know, underestimate things. It's actually to to be a little bit more bold, to be more perceived as competent. Well, I mean, especially we talk a lot about how every day we're competing for donor dollars, right? And And not necessarily like are they going to give to this nonprofit or this nonprofit, or are they going to go spend this money with this, you know, on this thing versus investing it in the not-for-profit space? So I think that, you know, being able to be perceived as competent is hugely important mm-hmm. to be able to win those opportunities. But one of the other things he said that was really interesting is that competence begins with confidence, like people mm. that come across as being very, very confident and very convicted even, you know, in what they're trying to accomplish and that they actually can do it. I mean, how about that? How many people think that their mission is achievable? I know that in some of our mystery donor Hmm. studies, we've had people say, well, you know, this is a a cause or a disease that can never be cured. I'm like, well, then if you don't think it can be cured, why am I going to give you money? Right. Right? I mean, like, (laughs) we have to figure out, like, how to present a confident, um, aspiration to our, our potential donors. And I think that his research backs that up. Yeah. And I think that's maybe one of the things too, where, um, it, you know, like on a more personal level in people's careers, I think there's a lot of like really, really nice people and being, 
you know, too confident comes across as, you know, not being nice or being arrogant or something like that. But, you know, there's a there's a fine line, but I think a lot of people should be focused on these tips to how to appear to be more confident because if you don't appear to be confident, then people don't listen to you as much and then they don't hear your great ideas and it doesn't lead to as much impact. And so I think there's definitely an argument to be made, particularly maybe within nonprofits, where people need to be more confident in who they are and what they know. And that'll help lead to greater impact on a bigger scale. You know, if we're just more confident in ourselves and our own jobs, you know, it'll kind of roll up. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting too. Just like, you know, he said something about modesty. You know, if you're overly modest, then people go out and try to find, you know, the answers to your modesty. uh, And it kind of works negatively. And I think there's a lot of modesty uh, and a lot of kind of, you know, not wanting to appear arrogant in our space. And maybe it's not helping very much. I don't know. Well, I think if you read between the lines, one of the things that comes across is that people really do want to follow a confident, competent leader, right? I mean, like so many people are in a, in a place where they're they're not sure, right? And when somebody comes across as being very sure, what, where I'm 100% convinced that we're going to accomplish this mission, there's mm-hmm. z- literally zero doubt in my mind. I mean, that's the kind of people that get behind and follow. I mean, one of my favorite movies, Braveheart, right? You know, mm-hmm. when he rides out there on his horse, he's like, <laughs> I am William Wallace, right? And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. And like, they're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> they can never take our freedom. He's convinced that they are going to win despite the adversity, despite like the odds stacked against them, despite the fact that they're going up against like the entire, you know, English entourage, right? I mean, like they are going to win. And that's the kind of stuff that I think people are inspired by and they want to give to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the type of leaders that they want to follow internally as well, right? And and again, the thing that I think is interesting throughout, whether it's attractiveness or likability or competence or confidence, he's he's kind of saying it's not even necessarily about having all of those things. It's about appearing to have all those things. And I think that gives everyone hope because you may feel like, oh, you know, I'm like the attractiveness, like, oh, you know, I'm not attractive. So what can I do? And it's like, well, uh, you can get a tan. That's first of all, you know, like just by appearing. Or you can run a podcast, right? <laughs> and you, can, you can always. Uh... <laughs> there you go. That's a, that's a way Hide to behind fake the it. microphone, right? <laughs> yeah. You can find ways to be behind screens like me uh, or not on screen. You know, there's there's some practical things. They're like, you know, oh, I'm not I'm not the smartest person in the world. You don't have to be. Right. You just need to appear like you have a bit more competence than you do. So I think that's what's interesting about his research is like I think it's really applicable regardless of you know who you are or how you look or you know your job. Like this stuff is right. important, even just working with other people. Right. Well, I'm sure we could go on and on and talk about this all day, but I'm I'm really excited about how I'm going to start to apply this in my own world. Brady, how about you? Yeah, I was thinking, it's like, oh, my boss is on this podcast and now he's going to know all these things, <laughs> you know, when I show up in the office and I'm just super tan and I have like dark eyebrows and <laughs> I'm like using all these tricks. Yeah, you're going to know gotcha. what's up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode in the chat here with Tim and myself and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Creek Show is produced by Next After, where I work. Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.